0: You're listening to The Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome into another episode of The Bible Nerd Podcast podcast. It's been a little bit since I've been able to uh, get back with you. I think last week we had a a lot going on and uh, I didn't even get to uh, record an episode. And then the week before that we did a revisited episode. So it's been since the 9th of June since we've been able to actually continue in our series with Dr. Kurt Wise and his book, Faith, Form, and Time. I'm pleased to report, though, that today, uh, a couple days later than normal, we're back at it. And what I want to talk about today with you is the explanatory power of creation biology, okay? And we're going to look at, if you've listened to our past uh, few episodes on the topic, you know, we've kind of just been going through the book, and we have been picking out some things that we feel are important, As it relates to the issue of creationism and the different topics that he covered in uh, this book. Now, the last two episodes that we covered were the genetic discontinuity and the age of the earth and then biological expectations of creation theory. Now what we're going to do, and this this is actually going to be not the last uh, episode that we do that covers, you know, issues of biology or whatever, but certainly the second to last one. We're getting ready to get into some flood things, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the, uh, the Tower of Babel as well before this series is over. So we have this and one more that sort of deal with the biological and uh, sort of genetic end of things. And in this particular episode, what I want to cover is the explanatory power. So we talked about the biological expectations of creation theory. Now we want to talk about why, from a biological standpoint, creationism is able to do a good job at fulfilling on, on, on the goods over and against something like the theory of evolution. And basically what we're going to do is just walk through some very clear points that Dr. Wise has laid out in the book and discuss them here for a little bit. Before we dive in, I just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, if you appreciate the work that we're doing here, I would encourage you to share it with somebody else. You know, take a screenshot on your phone, post on social media, tag me in it if you'd like to do that, and just let somebody else know. I mean, podcasts really do grow primarily through uh, word of mouth, okay? There's not much that I can I can do to sort of force the issue. If you're listening and you have a podcast that you currently host, I would be more than honored to to actually become a guest and to share um, some of the topics and subject matter that I've uh, developed an interest in over the years with your audience so you can always reach me at steve at com, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can on that if you'd like to have me on your show or your podcast or you know a show or podcast that you think will be interested in having me as a guest to talk about some of the subject matter that we deal with all right all right, without further ado, let's dive in and, uh, and talk about this, talk about the explanatory power of creation biology. So the first thing we want to mention here is that as we've discussed over the past couple of weeks, creationism explains not just the similarities among various trees of similarity and the similarity between phylogeny and ontogeny, but also the dissimilarities in these things. If creation is true, We not only should not be surprised by um, seeing a lot of dissimilarity between organisms at different stages of their development, but we should, in fact, very much be expecting this to be the case. And why? Well, of course, the the Bible tells us of many differences between organisms, right? The Bible tells us that the animals uh, were created, you know, birds and, and flying creatures and land animals were created on different days. The Bible tells us that different kinds of animals have been created and that those particular kinds of animals were able to reproduce after their kind. You know, the Bible tells us that on the ark they came two by two and that there were seven of some. And the reason is because these, again, these original groups of of creatures were needed to be preserved. God wanted to preserve them through the flood, along with the, of course, family of Noah. And so what we see here is organisms that have fundamental differences in their development. Would you not see a continuous branch ranging from some universal last common ancestor to what we have today? And I interviewed dr michael behe a while ago on the podcast talking about his book darwin devolves where he really goes into this in a big way and he you know of course he still believes in universal common ancestry but he does not believe that the darwinistic mechanisms have the goods to get beyond the level of about family or order which is exactly what creationists have been saying for a very long time okay and so it's, it's very important to realize that these dissimilarities that we see, they are a great thing for creationism because we would expect them, given what information we do have in the Bible, about the way that they were created and about the early development of life on Earth. The second thing to uh, consider here is that creationism explains not just the fact that organisms can be arranged in a hierarchy of increasingly large groups, but also why... There are so many characters that seem to contradict that pattern. Okay, so what is meant by this? Well, as we look at the different uh, classes of organisms, we of course have groups that can be brought together via different criteria, right? So we can look at, for example, a group like mammals, okay? We can see how we are mammals and, you know, gorillas are mammals and and many other land animals are mammals. And, And yet, we can also see and explain why so many... Uh, characters seem to contradict that pattern of groups for example there are some animals of course that are not mammals right and and dr wise kind of gives us a a very interesting maybe unexpected example of this sort of thing uh, going on and uh, so i'm going to quote from the book here and, and give you his idea of how this could be illustrated quote because humans were created in the image of god a picture of how god created can be seen in how humans make things In many houses, for example, one can find several different, quote, species of spoons that can be classified in the spoon genus. The spoon, fork, and knife genera can be classified in the silverware family. The silverware dish, kitchen, linen, and condimentware families can be classified in the tableware order, and so such classification can continue. Although the items did not evolve from a common ancestor, they were separately created, they still could be classified in a hierarchy. At the same time, this is not the only possible classification. In other words, it can be according to what they're made from, what store they were purchased from, etc. Furthermore, in the first classification, there are very strong similarities between the cloth napkins in the tableware order and the towels of the linen order placed among forks of the tableware order or among the grilling instruments of the cookware order and so forth the multiple hierarchies and frequent homoplasies and again the homoplasies are contradictions in the hierarchy encountered in the classification of man-made objects is what one might expect in the classification of god created objects quote okay so that's what is meant by this we can we can classify organisms in increasingly large groups but also within those groups there's lots of characters that seem to actually contradict that pattern this is not something that can be very well explained in the theory of uh, evolution okay Next and third here is that creationism not only explains the near perfection of the world, but it seems to better explain the relative rarity of imperfection. Okay, now this (laughs) seems kind of odd at first. What do do we mean by the the near perfection of the world? Well, by this, what the author is talking about is beauty and perfection. Of course, we, we see that God is a glorious God and God's majesty is clearly seen in the objects of the universe. And, and this is whether you're looking at the stars and the planets or whether you're looking at a a cell. You know, it's common for us to think about, um, you know, the world is being broken and fallen and that's that's because it is, but God didn't create it that way. And God himself is not that way. And when we look at the world, we see just absolutely beautiful, patterns in in nature and we see things that are so far beyond what a human being can actually do and and create and this is just more and more evidence for you know what we think of as uh, intelligent design god's omniscience and wisdom dr wise talks about is another expectation of having a perfect creator in the world and and he would have uh, reflected this in the uh, sort of original creation over time of course Thanks to the fall and, and the introduction of those things, we do have imperfection. We have suboptimal things that have introduced themselves, and imperfections have have come in. But, largely speaking, though, what we see is a beautiful world that God has created, and it is obvious to those who who see it. Okay, next thing that we want to discuss— is that creationism not only explains the similarities among organisms used by evolutionists to argue for relatedness, but it also explains the commonness of evidence for unrelatedness. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because we did talk about it quite a bit over the past couple of weeks. But right, it is this idea that, yeah, we see similarities and we can explain them with creation theory and we expect them, but it also is going to explain how common it is to see unrelatedness happening and dissimilarity happening. That is not something that is really an expectation of biological evolution at all. We should see a lot more similarity than we do dissimilarity, and that just doesn't seem to be the case. Next we have that creationism provides explanation for the incredible beauty of biology, the complexity and integration of complexity that so strongly characterizes the Earth's organisms as well as the language structure of DNA. We hinted at this a little bit already, but it really is a beautiful world that we live in. And and to watch, I mean, just to see something like a bacterial flagellum, you know, work is just insane. You know, to look at the anatomy of a cell from, from what we can see. I mean, it's honestly more complex than some of the, maybe even most of the, of, of the factories that that humans have built to mass produce, you know, cars and other things. When you look at this in and, and such a tiny form factor as well, humans have no hope of actually creating anything like that. And yet most humans are under the delusion that it just came about as a result of, of you know, biological necessity and natural processes. And that just doesn't make any sense. When you look at the evidence for design in something as small as the cell. And And, and so, Complex. I mean, we used to call these things like a simple cell. And, you know, when you look at a cell now with the technology we have, it's anything but simple. It's incredibly complex. And of course, we know that even DNA now is built on a code. Okay. It's built on a language structure. And then you have RNA, which acts as sort of an interpreter of this language as well. And actually, it takes those instructions and forms something meaningful for your body to do with them. And the fact that this is how the body works, is just it's just absolutely incredible. And to think that this could happen via natural processes alone, it just doesn't make any sense. And then finally, creationism explains the commonness of interspecific hybridization, what seems to be a low mutational load in organisms, as well as the sudden appearance of organisms and communities of organisms in the fossil record. Now, a lot packed into that, okay? So to sort of just, you know, bring it down and, and simplify a little bit, what this is talking about is the fact that within groups and and you know even crossing some of the Linnaean boundaries we do have the ability to hybridize organisms can hybridize with one another a couple examples that dr Wise gives uh, in the book of interspecific hybrids are uh, certain plants we have grasses roses lilies and fuchsias they are uh, I mean that That just sort of begins the list of plant groups that can show these interspecific crosses. Uh, He says this too, among the 149 species of ducks, swans, and geese in the world, 80% of the species, 40% of the genera, and 60% of the tribes are known to cross with other groups. And there's others as well that, that he mentions. And so this commonness of successful interspecific crosses is not expected at all outside of young age creationism, which is just incredible. And it's actually very common and very widespread. And this really does not seem to be something that should be expected on evolution. For example, he gives a list of sort of criteria here in terms of the compatibility. Their habits must have the same timing. You know, they have to seek mates at the same time of year and go about their business at the same time of day. They must be attracted to one another. They must be compatible physically and chemically. Now, with such a, a list of things that must be exact for mating to be successful, it's really easy for two organisms to lose their ability to, to cross, especially since genetic mistakes are introduced in virtually every generation in our current world. These populations are in a state of, of constant change. And so, as Dr. Wise says here, quote, it seems unlikely that two populations separated for many thousands of generations could remain capable of interbreeding it is much more unlikely that interbreeding would be possible after tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of generations of separation, yet with those who maintain the Earth is billions of years old, suggests that most of their species have been distinct for hundreds of thousands to millions of years. End quote. So you can see how this is an explanation that fits much better, even as unlikely as it still is, it fits much better on uh, young age creationism than it does on evolutionism. Okay. And the other thing, of course, that we see there, the low mutational load in organisms, right? So again, if we have millions of years of evolution happening, there should be a higher mutational load than what we see going on. And of course, the sudden appearance of organisms and communities of organisms in the fossil record, which is something that evolutionists have been having to struggle with to explain for uh, years and years now. It seems really odd. In fact, they call this, right, the Cambrian Explosion. And intelligent designers like to really harp on this quite a bit too. Dr. Stephen Meyer has written a book about it. It's just weird. Why is it not more gradual? Why don't we see a more gradual introduction of organisms and communities in the fossil record? We don't. It's very abrupt and very sudden. And this is something to be expected if young age creationism and, of course, the flood narrative as presented by the Bible is true. Okay, my friends, that's what I have for you this week here on the Bible Nerd Podcast, just sort of summarizing a lot of the biological data that we talked about. We're going to dive more deeply into the idea of the fall and genetic mutations next, okay? That's what we're going to cover uh, next week on the show, and I'm excited to talk through that because it's a subject matter that I think will be helpful for you to learn, just sort of how all of these things came about. So I uh, appreciate you. Thank you again for being a listener to the Bible Nerd Podcast, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Have a good one.